Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Uh, we are in a short series called Q&A, taking a break from Acts just for a few weeks, while we look at some of the weightiest questions that are asked in the Bible. We could do a whole other series on the big questions that people ask in life or in the world. Uh, be, there would be overlap, of course. But um, here we're in James, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're asking that you would teach us today. We always ask, Lord, we don't merely want to be informed, but we want to have wisdom and we want to be transformed. So we pray that your spirit would teach us all and that we would understand you better and therefore understand life better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, I'm going to start a sentence, and then you're going to fill in the blank. Don't do it out loud. Do it in your head. Nobody wants to hear what you're going to say. I'm going to start. I'm going to leave it. What word would you put in where I stop? Or words, right? Life is... Rob Warford was back there going, life is a highway. Oh, yeah, Rascal Flat song. Um, young guys don't know what that is. It's an old song. Um, or maybe, you, maybe you're going, like, life is like a box of chocolates. It's like Forrest Gump's mom's wisdom, which made like, no sense at all. Um, maybe you fill it in with, like, popular American proverbs, right? Life is what you make it. Life is what happens to you when you're making other plans, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I'd like you to take a moment. Like, what would you say? Life is what comes to mind? Like, what is the first thing that you put there? Life is, some of you would say, life is good. Life is sweet, right? Maybe you're in that spot where you recognize that, that you have it uh, pretty good and you're grateful for it and, you're, and you're, you're thankful. Others of you would say, the first thing that comes to mind, life is hard. Life is painful. Life is dark. Life is difficult. Life is empty. Life is killing me. The answer to the question, what is life, is big and complex, and it's the question we're going to look at today. So let me tell you what I want you to hang on to as we make our way through this passage, the principle, as it were, that I I think moves us to take this question seriously. And the principle is this, life is shorter than you expect and more meaningful than you can imagine. And we need both of these balancing truths in order to make our way through 
our own lives and much of the material that we have in Scripture. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage here that we read, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We're going to look at this passage. Now, I'm not preaching on the entire passage, so we're going to work our way through it, be kind of brief, summarize what it's all about, and then we're going to focus on that question, what is life or what is your life? So the passage begins in verse 13, and uh, here James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city uh, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So clearly, James is addressing, among the Christians that he's writing to, a particular set, right? These would be the merchants, right? The, the businessmen and women, the, the people that, uh, you know, buy, sell, trade. Uh, it is their business. It is their work. It is their vocation to go away into another town. They make plans. They put it all together. They go, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to set up shop. We're going to stay there for this period of time. And we're going to do our work and make a profit. And uh, it's not the planning that gets them into trouble. It's not the profit. That's not a problem either. But they are being corrected here, right? Because it starts with, come now, you who say, right? So in other words, like, listen, listen up. You people who function like this, because you're actually functioning in a way that isn't healthy. It's detrimental to your very being, to your life. Come now, you who say, you who do this. And while he's talking to merchants in particular, like as the example, we all wind up doing this. We all wind up making the same mistake that these merchants were making at the time, The problem isn't the planning. The problem is the presumption. The problem is is that these merchants, and we do this as well, we presume that we can go about our life and leave God out of the equation, that that we can make our plans and set up our destinies, right, and and put together a, a path that we're going to follow that has a particular goal, and we can just do it without regard to God, without inquiring of the Lord for wisdom. We can leave him out of the process so that when he ultimately interrupts our plans, our only likely response is to be one of frustration and anger. The merchants were presumptive that they were the captains of their own fate, right? That they could just do what they, that their plans would just work, right? It's not that the planning was wrong, it's leaving God out of the equation. That's the problem. And so what, what does he say here uh, in verses uh, 13 and then 14, right? Come now, those of you who say this, we're gonna go, we're gonna spend a year there in trade. You do not even know what tomorrow will bring. See, th- this is, he brings reality into, into their equation that has left God out. We're going to go. We're going to accomplish this. We're going to make our, our bones. And we're, we'll come back home. It's going to be great. Okay, uh, you're presumptive, right, that you can do this without God. And here's the reality. You have no idea what tomorrow brings. In other words, nothing is guaranteed in this life. Nothing is certain. I know some, some things are certain. Like they say death and taxes are certain. No, there's a... Like, well, what about the Lord? Isn't the Lord certain? Okay, yes, he's certain. I'm also certain that you're annoying and nitpicking. Uh, like, listen, the, the, we're, yes, some things are certain. But in, in life, right, in your experience, in terms of your circumstances, nothing is certain. Nothing is guaranteed, right? And yet they're acting as if, like, no, like, my plans are certain. They're acting as if they are God. We act as if we are in control. When we leave God out of the equation, out of the plan, and go about our way, this, li- this sets us up for hard failure. 
because we do not know what tomorrow brings, and whatever tomorrow brings is going to run right into us and into our plans. So it's in this setting where James asks the question. There's the, there's the problem of presumption. Oh, you're going to put together your life, make some plans, leave God out of it. The reality is, is you don't know what tomorrow brings. So here's the question in the second part of verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. The question itself is demonstrating a truth. And the truth is, these merchants have not really thought through the question at all. What is your life? Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? Because they haven't. They haven't. They've thought about it as deeply as 21st century Americans. YOLO! Like, you only lose, live once, man. That's my philosophy of ministry, bro. Like, it's like, okay, that, that's cute. That's cute, vacuous, and will lead you nowhere. Uh, in fact, it, it will lead you somewhere. It rhymes with hell. Uh, you only live once. If you, you live for yourself and you just fulfill your own desires and you do your own thing, it's all kind of silly, really. He's saying, like, listen, I'm going to ask the question that you have not really been dealing with. What is life? And it's not just abstract. It's personal. What is your life? Now, we're going to answer this question in more detail later. But what James does is he points to something that they've been missing entirely, and that is, in part, we would say that life is fragile and temporal. Right? You're here for a moment, and then... You're gone. How are you making plans like this, leaving out the fragile nature of life and the God who reigns over it all? How can you make these plans? So he offers a correction. James is like, listen, you're presumptuous, right, which is foolish, and, so, and, and you're missing reality. So what I want to do is I want you to think about the nature of life, and, and I want you to function like this. So here's the correction. The correction says, in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Right? So he's saying that right now you're functioning very arrogantly and proud as if you were the center of your universe, the captain of your own destiny, and uh, you've been leaving God out of the equation. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live or do this or that. So what is the correction here? Number one it isn't, well, don't plan for stuff because clearly we're supposed to plan and they're encouraged to plan. It's just, it's in the context of acknowledging God's will, his sovereign will. So number one, yes, make your plans. Look ahead. Use, this, use your brain that God gave you. Give you that big, beautiful brain. Use it. If your brain isn't so sharp, use somebody else's brain. Get some advice. Get some counsel. Figure it out. Look ahead. Go, okay, here's a potential plan for how we think we could do our lives, whether it's your education, your career, your relationships, uh, your health, like whatever it is, right? Look ahead and make your plans. That's not the problem. That's fine. But if you're going to make your plans, the second thing that you have to get right, is to acknowledge and embrace God's rule over our plans, that God's will will override our will. You have to understand that God is ultimately in charge, that he is a God of providence, that he is a God of decrees, that he has purposes that we do not know, and so he will achieve his ends, his goals, his purposes. So yes, if the Lord wills me to do this, then I'm going to do it. That needs to be your thinking. It doesn't have to be the thing you say every time somebody asks you to do something. 
You don't always have to say, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. If the Lord wills, let's, let's, let, I'll call you tomorrow. If the Lord wills, he'll do this. It's, Lord, it's fine. I'm not making fun of you if you do that. Don't take it personally if you do that. I'm just saying you don't always have to say it. In fact, you can say it and not mean it at all. The main important thing here is that it becomes a way of thinking. It becomes a part of our faith that we understand that we will only ever be able to achieve our goals, to achieve our dreams, or to push through the, the trouble and the difficulty that we're facing if God wills it. We still have to plan, we still have to strive, but ultimately we submit ourselves to God's will. So we plan ahead, we acknowledge God's sovereign will, we submit to God's will, and we, in this context, stay humble because we know that we are not king, we are not God, we are not Lord, we are not in charge. So humility, and this is a theme of James, is God exalts his humble people. So that's the passage in summary, right? That's the passage, uh, this Sin of presumption, leaving God out of the planning equation of life. They're confronted with reality, given some questions to think about, and then they are corrected. I want us to focus on the question itself for us, for you. The question is, what is life? And with that, what is your life? This is a deep question. This is a profound question. And we only have minutes here to even talk about it. So I'm not going to give you all of the answers, but I am going to point you to God's word. The problem with a question like this is, is we oftentimes assume that we have it figured out, right? We assume that it's easy. This is easy math, the kind of math that I can do. Funny thing is, is the easy math that I can do, I still get wrong all the time. Simple addition, subtraction. My whole family makes fun of me because I, I get those wrong all the time. But we think like it's, it's easy. It's, it's easy math. I can do this. Uh, you know, what is life? Well, you know, it's just uh, it's, got, it's me being me, you know? We just kind of go with the flow. We think we get it, but we haven't really thought through it and others are on the opposite end of the spectrum. The question, what is life? They'll say it doesn't matter. What does it matter? Life is a pain. What's the phrase? I'm not trying to be too crude here on Sunday morning, but what is the phrase? Life sucks and then you die, right? That's the philosophy of a lot of people in the world because it's hard. And then what's at the end of it? Actually, it sounds a lot like part of the book of Ecclesiastes. The question is, is really, what is the nature of life? That's what we need to be asking. What is it? What is the meaning of life? That's the question. And what is your life specifically? So I'm gonna look, we're going to look at four things that the scripture says life is. Life is four different things. It's more than that, but we're going to look at four. Life is four things here in scripture. And the first one that we need to wrestle with is that life is sacred. Life is sacred. All life is sacred. Your life is sacred. Life is not merely biological or chemical. It is biological and chemical, right? Your physical existence, but it is not only biological and chemical. Nor is life merely a series of, of connected circumstances or events. Life is more than that. Life is sacred because it comes from God. Sacred, not a word that we use a whole lot. We use words like precious, significant, important, but sacred? Most people don't even know what sacred means. They just think it means important, you know, precious, special. To say that something is sacred means that it has been set apart for God. That's what it means, sacred. Life is sacred. Human life is sacred. Your life is sacred. The reason is because as we talked about this last week, Genesis 1.27 says that God made mankind, he made man and woman in his own 
image. We are all, every human being, regardless of who we are, what we believe, how we, be, how we behave, all of us are made in God's image. Therefore, we have worth and value and dignity. We reflect God. We were made by God. We were made for God. We belong to God, whether we accept that reality or not. The image of God, the imago Dei, right? The imprint on all human beings, that's what makes you sacred. That's what makes your life sacred. And some of you think, like, I know people get to the point where they think, like, my life is so screwed up. I've made such a mess of my life. There's nothing sacred about it at all. It's just a mess. It's a sham. You can't unsacred your life. Your life is sacred. It, it, it belongs to God. You still bear the image of God. You think, like, well, my life is irredeemable because I've, irredeemable because I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. Nothing, I can't change. I'm too weak. Whatever, whatever the problem is that you're thinking, like, oh, my life is over. It's ruined. Your life remains sacred. And God is the God of redemption. Life is sacred. And because life is sacred, your life is sacred, all life is sacred, this is why we actually have much of the morality, uh, much of the commands, the ethics that, that, that we hold to as Christians. Now think again of the sixth commandment. Right? You shall not murder. Why? You shall not murder. Why is that? Don't some people need it? <laughs> you feel that way. Right? Don't some people need a little murder? Don't, uh, what, is it because it makes for a, an uncomfortable society? Does it mean, is it wrong because then only the powerful will win? Murder is wrong because life is sacred. Life belongs first to God and is given to us. So this is why we do not murder. It's why we say that it's wrong. It's why we say all human life is worth protecting. It's why we care fundamentally for the unborn. It's not a political issue for us. I mean, it's political in that it involves the government. But the reason that historically the Christians have valued the unborn, the preborn, is because we recognize that is human life. It's sacred. It's a human being made in God's image, and we are therefore called to protect it. All life is sacred. I mean, listen, it's not just about taking of life. Jesus takes this in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, and when he points out, like, well, you know the law, right? You, you've heard what the law says about murder. Uh, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus said, listen, the reason we treat people the way that we do, we don't murder them, we don't hate them, we don't hurt them, is because life is sacred. Their life is sacred. It's why we actually extend kindness and help. God's laws are not arbitrary. He's not just giving us things to do because they seem like they might be fun or interesting for a time. They stem from his very character. Life is sacred. Your life is sacred. Keep that in mind as you're navigating through the questions that you might ask about your particular circumstances. Life is sacred, so don't dishonor it. Instead, protect it. Number two, life is fragile. Yes, although life is sacred, it is from God, it is a gift, it is something that is easily lost, right? People, listen, I know we tend to think that we're resilient, and we are in many ways resilient, right? I fell out a two-story window, and I've been hit by two cars, 
I used to climb up these old abandoned silos when I was a kid. Uh, I'm just really surprised I don't have more injuries, right, just from the silly things that, that we've done, right? We, we feel like we have, we're pretty resilient, but the truth is, is one half-second delay in a decision walking through town is the difference between life and death. The smallest things can take a life. Germs that you can't even see can take a life. Life is, is fragile. Job 7.7 7 says, my life is a breath, right? It's just, it's there and it's gone. It's Psalm 78.39 says it this way. He remembered that they were but flesh a wind that passes and comes not again. We are dust. Life, human life is in many ways frail. And if it is fragile, we need to be careful with it. And many of us are not careful with it. Now, we, do, we shouldn't be paranoid. We certainly shouldn't be looking over our shoulder as if we're living in the Final Destination movie and the, and the, and the death is coming for us at, at every point. But we should certainly live with the awareness that our life can be taken from us quickly. And if it's not the whole of life, it can be the health of life. Life is fragile, so be careful with it. Cultivate it, care for it, protect it. Life is sacred, life is fragile, and life is short. Fragile and short sort of go together, don't they? Life is short. That doesn't mean that, you know, your days are short compared to another person's, right? A lot of us, a lot of you here are going to live into your 90s, uh, beyond even. But life, life is short, and here, I, I, I don't necessarily mean shortness of days, right? Because that would relate more to frailty. To say that life is short means that it goes by very quickly. You know who says that all the time? Old people. Oh, listen to the old people. Life goes by so fast. They're always telling the young people, they're always telling the young people, like, we need to listen to them. Like, old people telling us, like, hey, listen. They, they see you, you know, graduate in high school, you know, going to college, getting married, having babies. And what are they always like? Hey, listen, it goes by fast, especially when the kids go, goes by fast. Pay attention. They get everything you can out of it. Like, pop, 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 old timer. Okay. I've been paying attention. It's not going by fast at all. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're 50. And it went by so fast. I, listen, I, and I know 50 makes me uh, young to some of you old people and, uh, and, and old to some of you young people. I remember thinking as time was going by, like, they keep saying it's going by fast. It's not going by fast. Because in the moment, I'm enjoying it all. I'm paying attention. I'm taking notes, people, literally. But they're not lying. The reason they know that life passes by fast is because they lived much more of it than you, and they've lived most of theirs. You get on later in life, and you realize, wow, life is actually short. It goes by quick. That means it's easy to waste. It's easy to put your time, 
your focus, your energy on the wrong things. Wrong doesn't mean sinful, by the way. Many a good man and good woman have wasted their lives by pouring all of their energy into secondary things, leaving God and the people that God has put in their lives out of the equation. Life is short, so don't waste it. Be mindful of the choices that we make. And so far, we start talking about things like life is sacred, life is fragile, life is short. And these are the kind of things that almost any philosophy student or any other religion, for that matter, can, can embrace. We can get behind this sort of a thing. Like life is special, at least, right? It's significant. Uh, it's fragile. It's short. Like, but we start to part ways significantly with other people when we talk about the reality that life is full of meaning and what it actually means. Life is full of meaning. It's not empty. It's not trivial. It's not vanity, even though it can feel like that. Life can feel pointless. In fact, it is so true that life can feel like an utter waste of time that there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to the idea. The book of Ecclesiastes says over and over again, that life is vain and meaningless, but that's actually not its point. What the book of Ecclesiastes is ultimately saying is that, yes, life will feel and will experientially be vain and meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind, right? You can never catch it. It is without meaning, without purpose, and therefore without significant joy. If you leave God out of it, that's the point. Right, let's just look at a, at a couple of, of passages, um, if we could. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is, is a big one. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And that's how life feels, right? feels like hard work, right? Whether you're, you know, uh, shoveling asphalt uh, in the city or whether you're, you know, crunching numbers in a cubicle, whatever it is, right? You're, you're struggling, you're toiling beneath the sun. It's hard. Whatever it is, life is hard. And what do we get for it? The implication is nothing. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes is saying, look, listen, this is what life is like if you start to wrestle with the question of what is my life without God. If you go beyond the making of plans without God to is there a point without God? That's where we wind up. So yeah, life is full of meaning. And only if we understand that God is the source of that meaning. Because if we keep reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and we come to Verse uh, 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, how is that? He just said there is no purpose in the toil and the striving. His days are full of sorrow. How can he now say there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil? This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This 
also is vanity and a striving after the wind, right? So get it, right? Without God, it is vanity, it is without purpose, but if God is at the center, if you derive the meaning of life from God, you can better understand your experience and your circumstances and you will actually have wisdom which enables you to have joy in the midst of your toil. Toil and striving sounds horrible. Ain't nobody likes toil and striving, but that's life. Like, lace up your shoes, right? Get ready, because that's life. It's hard. And the older you get, well, sometimes it it, it tends to get more complicated. It, It tends to get busier. Life doesn't ease up on you. So where do we find this joy? Where do we find this meaning? We find it in God, the one who pleases God. This, is, this means the one who believes, the one who knows God, the one who listens to God, the one who walks with God. We can go to the very end of Ecclesiastes, the very last thing that's said. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's it. Fear God, that means don't be afraid of him. It means to to be in awe of him. To to fear God is to truly believe, like to genuinely believe, to know who he is and to embrace that and to submit yourselves to him, to fear the Lord and to keep his commands, right? To have a kind of relationship with God by faith that that results in you saying, oh, these these are your commands, this is your will. I'm going to walk in your ways. Life is full of meaning, when it's found in God, like this, and this is not subjective, right? This is objective. All life has meaning. Everyone's life has more meaning than they can comprehend because God is more than we can comprehend. And we derive our life and therefore our meaning from him. And if that's true, then your life has meaning. And if your life has meaning, that means that every part of your life has meaning. Every circumstance you endure has meaning. Every relationship has meaning. Your successes have meaning. Your failure has meaning. Your struggles have meaning. Your victories have meaning. The peace that you may be experiencing has meaning, or the pain that is overwhelming you has meaning. Your love and your losses, it all is significant. It all matters. Life is sacred and fragile and short, but full of meaning. And when we understand that God has a purpose in all things for us, right, to glorify him, to know him, to please him, to derive our joy and our satisfaction from him, to be blessed with wisdom so that we can actually enjoy the good gifts that we have here without wasting them, all of this should lead us to a place where what Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to do, to trust God, right, to trust God and to walk in his ways. But more specifically, if we can be a little more specific on this, We'll read Colossians again. We read this during the Lord's Supper today. We'll read part of it again, starting in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent? Isn't Jesus preeminent? 
He is, right? He is first. Objectively, he's first. But that he might be preeminent, I think, is speaking to this idea that we would recognize his preeminence, that we would say, yes, Jesus is Lord. That's what that really means. Jesus is Lord is a bumper sticker these days, but it used to mean, no, I submit to no one before Jesus, and it could cost you your life. To say Jesus is Lord was a radical reorienting of your entire life, your perspective, your values. It changed everything. It gave meaning, dignity, purpose to life. The meaning that we find in Jesus. I mean, this is why we tell people Jesus is the answer, the savior, God in the flesh. He is the one that we preach because apart from him, there is no true knowledge of God. To say that life is full of meaning means that it is possible to miss it, right? You can, I mean, how easy is it? We, we, we adopt simpler philosophies or um, more satisfying or immediately pleasing perspectives. We like slogans, right? We like things to just kind of, listen, we, we, we really prefer things to be uh, according to our own imagination, right? Things that we can recognize. And when you start reading God's word and looking for meaning and you begin to see what he actually says, you'll find out oftentimes, wow, you know what, God? That's very different from how I would say it. That's very different from how I would do it. This is why it's, in order to change your attitude from my will to if the Lord wills, the, the, the only way to change that is to have a bigger understanding and a deeper understanding of who God is and what the purpose of life is. This question is not academic, what is life? Because the question actually is, what is your life? I'll tell you what it is. Your life, my life, is a gift from God meant to be lived before his face. Your life is a gift from God meant to be worked out in the presence of the giver. And your life, it includes everything, every part. Some of us tend to think like, well, my life, we think about a big picture. But then when we get into the, the, the concrete details, we, we sort of compartmentalize things. And some parts are lived before the face of God and other parts aren't. But really, it's your public life and your private life. It's your, it's your church life. It's your work life. It's your relationships. It's your friendships. It's all of it. It's your existence. Your life is the gift of your existence meant to be worked out before the very face of God. And in doing this, we have what? We have wisdom and joy. You see, it doesn't just lead to faith and repentance. It does, right? But what faith and repentance really is, in a sense, it's, it's a clarified vision of reality. We actually know who God is and we know who we are. We believe in God and the gospel and we see our own sins and so we repent and we turn away and God is giving us wisdom with vision, right? We have clarity and therefore we have joy because we understand God's purposes and his plan. This is why we say, listen, it's important that we all recognize that life is shorter than we expect and more meaningful than we can imagine. We have to say that it's shorter than we expect so that we are 
essentially protected against taking it all for granted, recognizing that it's both fragile and that it passes by quickly so that we make the most of what God gives us. But it's also far more meaningful than we think. It's not just meaningful because of one thing. It's fundamentally meaningful because of God, and this branches into everything. My encouragement to us is to be careful to look to Jesus, to, to intentionally look to him, and to recognize what Scripture says about Christ and his place. Not just his place in the cosmos, right? That's objective. Objective. It's certain. It's true. But his place in our life, which is subjective, right? It's a part of our experience. What we know to be objectively true about him should be subjectively true for us. He is the Lord. He did create all things. He does sustain all things. He has put us where we are and when we are for his purposes. So there is meaning in our lives. There is profound meaning in our existence, and in every area of our lives, we can say it is sacred, spiritual even. Therefore, we should take it seriously, cultivate it, protect it, share it, and in all of it, look to God for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would continue to teach us beyond the short time that we have here today. Lord, that you would use your word to redirect us through the songs that we sing that reflect your word, through the scriptures that we read, the messages that we listen to. Lord, would you change our perspective and change our hearts wherever necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.